Hello, friends, and welcome to the podcast. This episode is sponsored by Zoe Digital Japan. Get more visitors to your website and convert them into paying customers. Zoe Digital helps foreign companies expand in Japan with digital marketing services. Look for the elephant logo at zoedigital.jp. Now and Zen is also sponsored by the Gugu Mattress Company. Super comfortable and very affordable. Nothing better than a great night's sleep with a Gugu Mattress. Discount codes available later in the podcast. Hello, everybody. This episode, I speak with a charismatic, long term Tokyo veteran, Frank Foley. Frank has been in the character and brand licensing and content marketing industry for nearly 30 years in Japan. He was the Japan country manager for Guinness World Records, where he tried to move away from wacky and crazy world records to a local strategy for Japan and even participated in setting the world's longest beef skewer record in Ishigakijima. He has represented intellectual property brands from the Rolling Stones to Thomas the Train. Frank is currently the owner of Next Big Thing, which just happens to be the name of one of two TV shows he hopes to launch in the near future. Frank shares his recommendations on Japanese music artists you gotta hear, one recent book which really hammers home the optimistic future of Japan. Success stories of corporate world records, the benefits of Thomas the Train toilet paper, and other fascinating stories I'm sure you will glean insight and entertainment from. Direct from Tokyo, this is Now in Zen with Frank Foley. Disney certainly drives a hard bargain in terms of royalties. I'm not so familiar with Sanrio, they're probably a bit more flexible. They're pretty、um, flexible on what they put the Hello Kitty logo on, that's for on, sure. On the approval.、Um, they, you can slap a Hello Kitty logo on almost anything.、Mm. I, mean, I think they'd argue. They'd argue how they have their standards. And, and protecting the brands is very, very important. They have Hello Kitty condoms. Yeah, and we had Thomas the Tank Engine toilet paper. You know, that was one that,、uh, you know, we had pushback initially from, I had a call from the CEO from London one day to. Say, look,、um, I just had a call from,、uh, from people at the trust, and they were a bit worried that someone sent them this toilet paper from Japan. <laughs> and, and I said, Yeah, isn't it great? And he said, Well, what's great about it? And I said, Well, you know, Japanese parents have realized that one of, the, one of the best ways to teach their kids toilet training is Thomas on the toilet paper. You know, that's why they'll go to the toilet by themselves. And he laughed, and, you know, once it was explained to them what it was, and now you can buy Thomas the Tangent toilet paper all over the world. I'm sure the Sanyo people would have a similar explanation for, for condoms. All right, Frank Foley, what did you have for breakfast this morning? I had my usual breakfast. I, I'm into oatmeal in a, big, in a big way these days. Oatmeal? Oatmeal. Wow. All of a start with oatmeal, a salad, a, an omelette. Jeez. And the, yeah. Number one, it sounds like a big breakfast, and number two, it sounds darn healthy. Small, small portions of each, but、um, yeah, that's, Very healthy. that's how I start the day. Let's get started properly. Yep. Frank, thanks for coming. Cheers. Come by. You are the owner of the next big thing. Yes. What is the next big thing? The next big thing is actually an idea for a TV show that I had. And the idea was Japan has needed to look at, ex- at developing markets overseas, but you know, is not particularly good at that, especially small and medium sized companies. The idea with the next big thing was a TV show where 
companies from all over Japan could come and pitch their products to a panel of experts, experts in export. So the name of your company is potentially the name of a TV show? Of a TV show, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. It never happened, but it was a good idea, I think. It's kind of like a Japanese version of Shark Tank. Well, it's more in tone. I thought it was more antique roadshow. It was taking something that is mundane in one context. It's every day in, in one context. You show it to someone else, and wow, this, this could be the next big thing. Could you give me an example? Well, when my sister and her family came to visit us, they live in Brisbane. In Brisbane, they get every afternoon during the summertime, they get these squalls four o'clock every day. Everyone runs out and tries to pull, get their, uh, their washing off the, off the line. So she was in our laundry in our house down in Kamakura and my wife gave her, you know, the frames that we have here with all the pegs on it. She looks at this and she said, wow, everyone in Brisbane should have these. As soon as it starts raining, all you need to do is go out and grab these frames and you've got all of your, your washing in, in in one hit. Yeah, what's that thing? It's the contraption that has the clothespin that hangs all your clothes together. Yeah. What is that called? It's like it's on a frame. I don't know. That's something. That's the frame. Anybody who lives in Japan knows what we're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Okay, but anyway. But so my sister, who uh, she looked at that, you know, saw it for the first time and said, wow, you know, everyone in Brisbane should have one of these. And I was thinking, well, maybe everyone should just go to Tokyo Hands every the first day they get to Japan and spiral go. down the shop there and they'll probably find another, well, well, if you turn that into a TV show and you had companies, you know, pitch what they think might be the next big thing. It's really common. We all know it down in Okayama or up in Hokkaido, but I think there might be a market in Seattle or I think there might be a market, you know, overseas. So that was the idea, is that uh, there are lots of next big things. So why didn't the discovered. TV show work out? The, the tough thing about TV shows, and I, I have another one at the moment that I'm shopping around that maybe we talk about later on, a music-related yeah. one. TV shows are, you know, there's so many moving parts. It's so hard to pull together. You need one company to step up and say, okay, we're going to do it. And I, I did pitch it to one of the uh, satellite channels here, and they were very interested, but then they decided to go another way. But, you know, it's just a really hard sell. And, sure. you know, and I thought, well, I'm not going to throw away the idea completely. So I used the name of the show for the, as the name of my okay. company that I set What's up the next TV show? The next one, well, it's skipping ahead to what I've done almost most recently is music. I've worked for Universal Music for about three years. What I realized there, and also from my daughter, her sitting in the car next to me, turning her music on in the car, is that, my God, there's a lot of great music in Japan that's, that's just not seeing the light of day outside of Japan just because of language. True. So I thought, well, what, what if there was a way, you know, a show that could introduce that music to the world outside? The name of the show is You Gotta Hear This. And that was because so many times we're sitting down talking to like foreign friends here, who, you know, some have lived here for a long time, and they'd start, you know, they talk about Japanese music and say, oh, it's just J-pop, it's AKB48 and Johnny's and, you know, bubblegum type music, no, nothing in it. Yeah. And I'd say, no, 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 look, you gotta hear this. And I'd pull up my phone yeah. and I'd play these amazing bands like, you know. Like who, who, who do you like? Glim Spanky was one of the big ones at Universal Music at the time. Yeah, yeah. She Can is. You say it one more time. Glim, G L I M, Spanky. She is Janis Joplin incarnate. She's just absolutely amazing. Is she still performing in Japan? Yeah. Okay, who else? Um, Enon, Enon Kawatani. He is what I would call Japan's David Byrne. Nice. I mean, it just blows you away. I'm a little bit old school, but I'm a real big fan mm. of Southern All Stars. Right. And also Dreams Come True. There's got to be today's version of both of those artists. There are. I mean, my old style would be Spitz, for example. Well, it was at Universal Music. They've got a band called Back Number. And Back Number is 
in, in some way it just sort of seems to me like it's it spits for 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 today in a, and did in a you sense. get turned on to this music through your daughter or did you discover them through working at universal music but no well i love music and a lot of these bands i knew myself before as well what my daughter taught me is that there are even now there are new bands coming out that i like as well there's a band uh that my, for example that my daughter put me on to galilei galileo two brothers and it's just great pop rock music a song Wednesday. They're just we're going to listen to one song of theirs. Wednesday. It's just a beautiful riff and that's today's recommendation vocals. is Wednesday. That's Wednesday. Yeah. All right. Yeah, but I, I love music. So this you got to hear this is the one we've been we've been shopping around. We've pitched it to everyone. Everyone loves it. But again, you just need same with next big thing. You need just one company to step up and say, okay, we'll do it and pull did all the parts. You, did you listen to my podcast with Guy Perryman? I did. Yes. Yeah. He talked about the difficulties. Mm in introducing Japanese artists to overseas markets. Yeah. In that a lot of labels, they don't even have interest. Yeah, yeah. It's too troublesome yeah. to deal with all those. What, how do you, what do you think about that? He's absolutely right. You know, a lot of it comes back to just the business model, the, the way the music industry is organized here, and then just the whole thing of Japan being, we're okay, we've got scale. You know, we don't really need to go overseas. But there are bands that want to get overseas. Our idea was to use international artists to introduce those bands to an audience outside. That's a great idea. The simple idea was, so you get uh, Billie Eilish, and she has just been to Japan, and she, she gets back to, to her hometown, and she gets on the phone with a producer or songwriter friend of hers and says, I just heard this band in Japan, you know, you gotta hear this, you gotta hear it. So she plays this band, and then this producer, we couldn't get Billie Eilish to commit to making a, you know, a TV series, but a producer or a songwriter, you know, they'd love to come to Japan. Each episode is maybe a 30-minute episode. Each episode features one band. And this producer says, okay, well, if you want to release your song overseas, and they work in over the half an hour, sort of working. So each, yeah. each show has an output at the end. It's got a, a, a version of one of their songs that they could release overseas. I like that idea. I think it's very interesting. Japan has this unique interest in what other cultures or other yeah. countries think about yeah. their culture. Yeah. For example, a foreign artist mm. is really interested yeah. in a Japanese artist, yeah. and that brings more attention to that domestic artist. Uh, so you got that audience in Japan of that band, because for exactly the reasons you said. You've got an audience overseas, and you've also got the record companies wanted to promote one of their artists in Japan. You know, what better way than to couple them with a big, huge band like Glim Spanky or... Yeah. Or, um, you could even take it a step further. This is not my free, unsolicited <laughs> business idea. Whichever international artist yeah. promotes this Japanese artist mm. takes them as the opener yeah. on their next tour. That's right. So that would have been like those sorts of collaborations and... That's exactly what you'd want to do. I think for cool. the moment it'll be more of a more of a studio thing or a or, or a streamed thing. Um, That's cool. But, yeah. Could you say, Frank, the next big thing for next big thing mm. is you got to hear this? I think so. Tonight, this is exclusive for your for your podcast. Thank so we're, you. we're just putting it out there and we're saying, look, if anyone's out there and they want to work with us to try and make this a thing. Obviously, one of the hurdles for Japanese music becoming popular overseas is the language barrier. Yeah, yeah. How do you expect foreign audiences to become really interested in specific Japanese artists mm. 
does it have to just be a catchy tune or a great melody? Mm. How do people overcome that language barrier? And I think that's it, is you lead with melody. You know, I was talking to a friend just today and I was talking to him about this idea. And he said, wow, you know, I was 12 before I realized that there were lyrics in a song. You know, you, you went into songs as a kid for the melody. For most songs that I listen to now, in, you know, in English, I, I couldn't repeat the lyrics to you, but I could hum the melody. You know, melody is the thing. So you know, it's partly getting beyond that. But I think, you know, you, you could make songs more accessible by including English in the, in the lyrics as well. And a lot of Japanese artists are doing that, you know, already. Glim Spanky, they, they sing in English. You know, music is music. For example, during the 80s, so much of pop music, you know, a massive percentage of it was coming out of Sweden. And it, it just so happened that at that time, there were all these amazing songwriters and producers in Sweden who were creating all of these pop songs. Yeah, but most of those and, songs were in English, though. Yeah, so they were able to do that in English. But that came from collaborations with their colleagues in the US and in, in the UK. Makes sense. Cool, I like talking about music. You represented the Rolling Stones, Queen, Justin Bieber, Lady Gaga, yeah. and I'm sure many, many yeah. more. When you say you represent them, what does that mean? Universal Music has a company, a subsidiary called Bravado, and Bravado does the merchandising and a lot of other licensing deals for artists. It's largely everything outside music, like straight music licensing is, is done by the labels and happens via other channels. But all of their merchandising is done through Bravado. So I was heading the Bravado Japan team. Cool. Working with all of Universal Music's label, well, with the Western labels. Did you get to meet any of these artists that you represented? Artists would come and visit when they were touring Japan. There was more, more Japanese artists. I mean, Mick didn't drop in, and Lady Gaga didn't drop in. Oh. Uh, Obviously, yeah. Freddie Mercury did not drop in. No. <laughs> so you were involved with a lot of the merchandising then for yes. these artists? yeah. Are there any unique differences when representing music, intellectual property, IP, compared to fictional characters like Thomas the Train? I think it's more about them being people rather than musicians. It'd be the same with Hollywood talent as well, I'm sure. But, you know, you're dealing with people who have opinions and they get involved, whereas obviously Thomas doesn't speak up that much about the... The, the, the kids' licensing business is more by the book for the most part. You know, you have, you have a brand Bible and you know what you can do and what you can't do, but categories are absolutely, you know, out of the question. Working with artists, you know, there's a little bit more scope to do things that involve the artists, and especially now when you can do so much streaming and digitally that, you know, they don't actually have to be in the country to involve them in things. So, for example, you know, we did, a, with Ariana Grande, we did a pop-up shop in Shibuya, um, oh, yeah. Ichimaru. I like her. Yeah, yeah, she's lovely, and she, um, you, you know, we had all of her approvals, obviously, from her her management to to do the shop and create all these this merchandise and everything. She actually turned up. She just wanted to come in. She turned up in this little little pop up shop in in Shibuya. Was she scheduled and, to and show? Bought, no, not at all. Wow, she that must up, have created a bit yeah. of a yeah. brouhaha. You know, she was sneaked in there and everything. But there were people who, you know, obviously people in their shopping who had the best experience of their life because Ariana Grande dropped in. The other thing is people like Mick Jagger's level, you know, they have, they know the top people here personally. So just these people and the labels and everything, they just give you access to the, you know, the best of, you know, Thomas the Tank Engine isn't going to get you in there. <laughs> no, he's not. Yeah. In Japan, and I love this, people are crazy about certification and accreditation hmm. for 
kind of wacky stuff sometimes, right? There's a sommelier for almost anything. There's a onsen sommelier. There's a vegetable sommelier. There's a salt sommelier, right? right? right. And then you can take it to the next level. There's getting accreditation as an expert mm -hmm. in something. So where I'm going with this is you were the head of Guinness World Records mm -hmm. in Japan. Yep. Were there a lot of people trying to get into the Guinness World Records? I think most Americans might just try to, you know, make the world's largest chocolate chip cookie. But in Japan, I feel like it might get pretty creative in this endeavor. First of all, the image of Guinness World Records that is, is about these crazy things and everything. But I describe the Guinness World Records, and it took me a while to figure this out, is that what Guinness World Records really is is that it has it has democratized number one. It's made it possible for anyone to be number one. The, the record might, might seem a little bit silly and, 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 and crazy, but to that person who's doing it, yeah, they're the number one person in the world. What a thrill for a four-year-old, or what, a, what an uplifting what thing for, for a 98-year-old. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's how I look at it. It's, um, it's democratizing number one. It's also, and we all got to loosen up sometimes, it, it's, it's doing something good for the world, you know. It's fun. Why not? But Japanese love accreditation. Mm. You know, there's a salt sommelier. They're not going to earn a living knowing the difference between Himalayan pink salt yeah. and Maldivian flaky salt. Yeah. It's just jiko manzoku. Mm -hmm. It's just something for your own mm -hmm. sense of accomplishment. Yeah, yeah. So there must have been some that wanted to get into the Guinness World Records just to say, I'm in the Guinness World Records. Uh, absolutely. We looked very carefully uh, at the, you know, what does Guinness World Records mean to Japanese people? Now, the Guinness World Records, the traditional business model for Guinness World Records is the book. You know, everyone knows the book. Yeah. With the team, and we're saying, okay, what does it mean to Japan, and, and how do we turn that into a, into a product? And in Japan, you know, the things we recognized was that Japanese love local content. So we had to have more local content. Okay. So we, we took, the book had been translated, you know, in a traditional way. It would be licensed to a Japanese publisher. They would translate it. We stopped that. We took the editorial inside. We added the first, what, 12 pages of the book were local records. Were those records that were already in the Guinness Book of World Records that you just pulled out and put into a separate category? Or were they, were they topics or categories or achievements that you solicited just specifically to create this special the, section? The, strat the strategy was to create new content. Very proactive with the, with the television stations and um, production companies and you know, getting into the variety shows and that we would have Guinness specials you know, across all the channels. We did specials with them. We did go out tactically and found high-profile celebrities. You know, Mino Monta, he still has a Guinness World Record, most, most hours of live television every year. Kurayanagi Tetsuko has, uh, Tetsuko no Heia is the, is the longest-running live show, and well, long, longest-running daytime um, variety show in the world, I think. Yeah, but if, that was probably already in the book, though, right? If that's the no, case. No, um, no, we, we found those records. We oh, realized, oh, we did okay. the research and we found that they didn't realize they had the record. I actually went on Tetsuko no Hea after the taping of the yeah. show. She didn't know anything about it. The staff organized it and I walked up to her and it was a sort of, this is your life type of thing. You know how much, how excited she gets normally. She was like 
very, very excited. It's still on the set. You know, if you watch her, her show now, yeah. the Guinness World Records that we have certificate is part of the set nowadays. Cool. And I actually, I was talking to her staff and I was saying to them, look, you know, if you're interested, all of you probably have Guinness World Records for, because a lot of them have been there since day one working oh, with her. Wow. Um, you know, Japan is like that, isn't it? You know, people, the old sort of, it's a bit of a stereotype, but people working for the same company for all their lives. But you, you generally get loyalty in Japan. So we created those ambassadors. We, another thing we did, we said, well, you know, what does Japan want to do itself now? And, and we thought, well, Japan needs to liven up the economy. So we, we have, it's, they still do it, uh, Machiokoshi. Machiokoshi. Yeah. Could you explain a little bit what that is? Well, well, it was more of a strategy from Guinness World Records side. You know, we would go out and we would do, we had a partner at the time who was helping us with it, just going out to towns all over Japan and doing presentations. You know, so at, you initiated this? Yeah. Because we, we could see that that's how we were trying to imagine from the Japanese consumer and, and local government and, yeah. and business point of view, you know, where could they see the Guinness World Records works in their world? What could we do for them? So that's something that you might approach the tourism yep, office yep, for yep, that yep. prefecture yep. or something? Yeah. Yep. So what are a couple examples of some interesting Guinness World Records that maybe Osaka or Okinawa did or something yeah. like oh, that? Well, Okinawa is a good example because I, I did this one myself. Down in Ishigakijima, they were they had just completed the runway for the international airport that's now opened. Yep. And they wanted to promote that. So we worked with them, and their one of their big local produce is the Ishigaki Gyu. Yeah, beef. So, beef. So there was a an existing record for the longest uh, shish kebab or longest skewer, you know, of longest beef. yakitori. Yeah, okay. uh, with beef. And, um, where was the longest? Where was the record? There's an interesting story there. It was held. It was somewhere in 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 the Middle East. Had a record, and it was 34 meters. I remember this. It was 34 meters long. Okay. So that's what they were aiming for. So they prepared everything, the the amount of meat and all of the infrastructure they needed to do that. About a week before the challenge was due to happen, a team in Lebanon set a new record of 102 meters. And the people down in Ishigaki, you know, they were like, oh, no, we, we can't cancel this. We got people flying in from. You know, it was a big tourism event. Right. They had people coming so in from how, how, by how overseas. much were they planning to beat the world record by? They, oh, they were aiming for maybe 40 meters or something. Okay. But it was, certainly wasn't anywhere near 100. So there was this mad scramble to, uh, to, to deal with. And, you know, it, it was a lesson to me in uh, pretty the best of Japan of like, you know, this fatalistic thing of, okay, shit happens. Shogun. We just got to deal with it. We, we just got to deal with it. We, we can't change the event. We've right. got to do it. So... So everyone worked like crazy, uh, including on our side, but, you know, a lot of work on their side. You know, they, they had these 44-gallon drums that they chopped in half to make a, a long enough thing to lay the skewer on, to barbecue, to lay the skewer on, put it on. Oh, no kidding. But anyway, it was all done. Normally, you know, one of the adjudicators would have gone out to do it, but I thought, you know, we've caused so much maywalk over those these people that I'd better go down myself to, uh, to adjudicate. So I went down, arrived, you know, the night before, and the uh, challenge went off the next day and everything, and... After the event, I had a, had dinner with the mayor. Wait a minute! After the event, you're you're like after cutting the, the best part out here. What oh, well, it, it all it, you know they they did it. They they absolutely did it. You know, you're telling this great story, and you, you didn't oh, they, even tell me if they succeeded in beating it, the record. They, of course, they got the record. You know, it's, what, it's was Japan, the, what, so they got, what was the length? They they beat the record by at least a meter. They you know it was 100, 105 meters. I mean, if they're trying to promote their new airport, their new international mm-hmm. airport. Why didn't they do it the length of the runway? No, that it, would be that perfect. Would, 
but they wanted to use the event to promote the runway, but they also wanted to promote local produce. Oh, and, you know, Ishigaki U was the okay. obvious thing to go with. So over 100 so, meters yeah. of beef. They broke the record. And where and did they do it? Did they do it at the airport? Yeah, it was just near the uh, near the runway. Yeah. And did they have a big matsuri, a big festival? Oh, it was a huge day, local bands and politicians and tourism people fly in from all of the neighboring Asian countries. Wow. And, and it, was a, it was a big deal. And huge. then did Lebanon get pissed off and, oh, no, and try to break it back? I'm sure they did after that, but it didn't matter. You know, you, they had that record for that time. You were with the mayor. So with the mayor, we're having, we're having dinner and we're having Ishigaki Yunus. You know, it just tastes great. It's really beautiful. And I, and I, said, I said to him, you know, I had some time coming in from the airport, especially and looking around, beautiful island and everything. And it, and, and I said, but you know, for Ishigaki Gyu, but I, I said, I didn't see any cows. And he says, yeah, well, <laughs> it's because you killed them all. <laughs> basically what he said to oh, As a joke. For um, the record, basically you killed all the cows. We had to kill all the cows. Oh, right? But they, you know, they didn't do that at all. They had, they had all right. the stock there and it was, all, it was all fine. How does somebody get into the Guinness World Records? Can they make up their own category or do they have to choose from an established category? First of all, it's, it's available free to everybody. You know, there are obviously a lot of people applying all over the world all the time, so you might have to wait a little while to get a response um, to it, but it's all there online. There is very detailed guidance on what constitutes a record. Uh, there are guidelines there. There's a list of, like, absolutely no's, you know, like, obviously anything violent or anything to it, alcohol or firearm. But there's a lot of help online how to put together your proposal for if you were doing a new record. Access. You can make up your own category if yeah, you want. Yeah. The first thing to do is go in and see if there's an existing record there already. If it's an existing record, they'll give you the guidelines for it. And as long as you follow those guidelines and provide everything that they ask you for. Yep. Well, the, the byproduct of that sometimes is people trying crazy stuff. Well, you know, and they're very careful too. This is where the guidelines come into it. Among the things that can't happen is anything that's dangerous. Guinness is very, very, you know, it's not a Guinness World Records unless you, they have approved the guidelines and mm -hmm. approved them, and they're certainly not going to approve anything that would be seen as dangerous in any way. Fair enough. So it's more about the celebration. Yeah. In terms of the business model then, you know, we had to, we didn't have the book to sell, so you then have to link that with commercial partners. You've got to bring sponsors in. We were doing a completely different business. We were saying, you know, we've got to work to make money we've got to monetize these events that we're doing so we need to work more closely with brands but then you've got this challenge of you know you don't want to be seen as records for sale you know so you've got to maintain the integrity of the certification process that's a good point yeah companies like panasonic the evolta battery pretty one of the biggest campaigns that guinness has ever done so the the, the challenge for panasonic they've got the evolta battery Okay. It does have a Guinness World Record for the longest life battery under their three measuring bodies in the world. The Guinness World Record acknowledged that. So Panasonic built a whole campaign um, around the thing. But the challenge they was... they should. That's interesting because one overlooked marketing opportunity for companies is doing or making something to get into the Guinness World Records. The media exposure alone is huge mm. PR. For example, my company, we could make the world's largest kitchen knife. Why don't more companies do this? Well, I'm glad you think that they're not, because actually there are. You know, when I left, we were doing probably maybe 25 to 30 of those sorts of promotions with companies every year just in Japan. But you don't want to overdo it. You could damage your brand if you're just seen as being out there with corporate brands all the time. So you've got to be careful, and, you, and you've got to make sure that each one of these records is actually meaningful to that brand. You know, it's saying something 
meaningful about the, the product. Good point. It's not just the biggest knife, you know, who go, you can't use that, what's the biggest knife? Exactly. So to give you an example, we did, uh, we did one with Kokoichi, you know, the curry chain. Kokoichiban. Yeah. In their case, they had the record for the most number of curry chains in the world. Oh, and okay. and then the closest one was like so far away, there was no way that that was going to be broken. They could justifiably claim they were Guinness World Record holders. Now, the challenge record was about the most number of curry dishes sold in a particular period. So they're, they're bringing customers in and they're getting them to try new, a new curry that they just launched at that time, I think. Everybody who participated in it, they got a free spoon, a Guinness World Record branded spoon to say Ooh. you participated in. The other thing we created, and this is another Japan creation that is now available all over the world, is we came up with an idea of certificate of participation. So the Guinness World Record is for Kokoichi in that case, or it could be Kirin, or it could, you know, it goes to the shacho of the, of the company. But to break that record, you know, they have thousands of thousands of people participating. Sure, you need people. So we created this thing called the Certificate of Participation. Where you, you created that in Japan? Yeah. It didn't exist before then? No, no. And Great so, and idea. It's a lovely little thing. It's like, it's sort of yay big and it's in a, a nice frame. And it's, the idea was, you know, you go back to work on Monday morning, put it on your desk and people say, Ooh, what did you do on the weekend? You know, oh, I broke a Guinness World Record. Right? Yeah, especially people want of Instagram. That, you know. It's perfect. People want to brag about it. Yeah. It's such a win-win because it's obviously revenue for Guinness World Records. And when we didn't have the book, we had to come up with these creative ways of creating revenue. But it's actually something people wanted. You know, they, and right. this, is, this is what we were looking all the time. And I'm sure it's, you know, what you're doing in your business as well, is you're looking for what do people want and, and what aren't they getting? People. Well, I can imagine in the, the curry chain, Koko Ichiban, great curry, by the way, mm-hmm. I'm a big fan. Everybody that participated got a, a spoon, right? Yeah. I'm sure everybody keeps that I'm spoon. Sure frame it. Yeah. yeah. And it's an advertisement for their curry chain. And it's like almost the furthest you can get from a commodity. It is priceless. You were awarded that by Guinness World Records. They are the only people who can issue it. Has there ever been a company that tried to be a competitor to Guinness World Records? That's a very interesting question, and the answer is yes, in the US. There was a bunch of university students who did, and they went the crazy way, you know, it was all sort of BMXing off roofs and... Like jackass TV show. Now, my view on this upstart thing in the US is ignore them. By paying attention to them, you're creating publicity for them. We are the leader here. Just carry on doing what you do in the best way you can, ignore these little competitors, they'll they'll disappear in the end because they're not going to be as good as you. It's opportunity cost. If you're the market leader in any category and you start to focus too much on the competition, Mm. you're taking away from your your core business. In your case, if they're just doing crazy stuff, which you don't do to begin with, that's not a sustainable business model. It just promotes Mm. recklessness. Japanese speakers know that ZO means elephant in Japanese. ZO Digital Japan is an SEO and digital marketing agency based in Tokyo. Contact them to help your business grow traffic by four times, seven times, and even ten times in one year with services such as SEO, content marketing, pay-per-click advertising, and more. Head to the website zodigital.jp and look for the elephant logo. We all know getting a great sleep is important, and this is what Gugu is all about. Super comfortable mattresses at very affordable prices and delivered to your home for free. They back up their best sleep ever promise with a 100-night money-back guarantee. 
Learn more at gugu.jp and enter the coupon code ZEN for your 20% discount. Gugu, better sleep, better you. So Frank, obviously you're into brands. Yep. And I can sense your passion about it. Let me ask you a really just basic question. What makes a great brand? Great brands have great stories. Brand is a story, brand is a promise, and then delivering on that promise consistently. You mentioned earlier on about discounting. and You wouldn't come into Japan with a brand and build your strategy around discounting your price and no. price campaigns and this sort of thing. You come in and explain what your brand is, and if that resonates with the Japanese consumer, they'll buy your brand because they like your brand. Getting your story across and establishing the trust in that you are going to deliver consistently and then, and then doing that. I believe that was the initial mistake Walmart made mm. when they first came to Japan. Mm. They used their U.S. slogan, everyday low prices. In Japan, low prices means yeah, yeah. cheap. You know, you know, you look at cases in the same category where one company succeeded and the other one didn't. McDonald's and Burger King. I mean, McDonald's obviously just did a much better job at understanding the Japanese consumer and while protecting the DNA of their brand, adapting to local tastes, with the menu and the serving sizes and, and just the, the, the location. They were, they were first, but others were first and failed as well. Costco and Carrefour came in at more or less the, the same time and Carrefour went out competing with Japanese companies. Costco came in and said, no, no, here's a niche over here. You know, we're, we're going to offer fewer SKUs of larger stuff that people aren't going to buy in a Japanese thing, and we're going to give them this big, huge car park where they can come in and big, huge trolleys that they can transport this stuff. So they saw a need that wasn't being met, and yeah. they succeeded, and the company that came in and tried to take on the Japanese head-to-head was, was failed. I read somewhere where you said Japan is a very good testing ground for many foreign brands yeah. in terms of improving quality or innovating their mm. product. Yeah. Two features of Japan is it's got scale, you know, so you can do some interesting business here and do it just for Japan. And you know, because of language, with internet and social media, information there's not a lot of information that goes out of Japan the other way. Now it's not as self-contained as it was in the old days, but it still is somewhere where, without risking your brand too much, you could come in and experiment with some some new categories. You know, for example, with Thomas or Nemesis is Ampaman. And the big advantage that Ampaman had was that it skewed much younger. So it was getting in about two years earlier than Thomas was. Also had the advantage of being ah, of starting with ah. And it's the first sound that Japanese babies make. So parents are convinced that the first word is Ampaman. They're convinced that ah means Ampaman. So oh, they're talking. So with all these obstacles against us with Ampaman, we knew we had to go younger. So we came up with this baby Thomas initially, but then it went right down to, you know, to infant uh, Thomas. And we started creating a much cuter Thomas with softer lines and softer eyes and completely new design. There was a lot of pushback from, for, you know, initially from, um, from the, the UK and, and the US on that thought were, you know, there's why, risk, why risk the to the brand, risk to the brand, you know, okay. going in areas that we're not familiar with and everything. But Japan was big enough for you know, for us to be able to experiment with that. And, and we have but part of that, and this is probably another issue we might get onto, but the, you know, the importance of having a really strong partner in, in Japan. And the partner in Japan is a company called Sony Creative Products, a subsidiary of Sony Music. Sure. And you know, Sony Creative, they're just brilliant at doing this sort of thing. And because we had this really great creative partner in Japan, and we were able to prove the concept of this baby Thomas, infant Thomas, 
and then that again that was you know a, a re-export to to western markets after that and, no and kidding. the world catches up yeah. what's the name of the baby thomas well, still, it's still Thomas, um, oh, okay. but it's just you know, it's it's designs and items for little babies, you know, bibs and sheets for infants, you know, yeah. pillow, pillows and blankets and. So, which became know. more popular, the original Thomas oh, it, or the new baby Thomas? Oh no, so it's all it all flows into each other. So you catch catch them early, like like Ampa Man does, and then keep them for uh, as long as you can. The other the other strategy has uh, at the other end is the the sort of the the kakure fan for Thomas. You know, once they, once you know, a little boy goes starts going to primary school. You know, he's not going to carry a Thomas rucksack because you know he's into big stuff. You know, Transformers by then. Yeah. But when he goes to bed at night, he might want to wear his Thomas pajamas and he might want his Thomas toothbrush. And so we, we created at that end as well. But the idea was just create something that had as long a life as possible. So that's one of the localization strategies that you were talking yeah. about. But there's a balance. Keeping your foreignness, the USPs that made your brand popular to begin with and yeah. recognized in Japan, yeah. and then localizing, yeah. how do you deal with that? You're exactly right. Your competitive advantage is that difference, that foreignness in, in so many ways. Thomas is never going to move from the island of Sodor to Japan. But what we did was, we, and this was another big sort of Japan initiative, which became big internationally after that, was we introduced a, a Japanese character, Hiro. Hiro? Yeah. And that was really important to Japan because by having a, by having a Japanese character, you've got, you've got this connection, a very physical connection, between Thomas, who was far away in the island of Sodor, and the Japanese character. What makes Hiro a Japanese character versus Thomas? This is where the creative people are just, the producers and the creative people are absolutely brilliant. So they came up with a storyline for Hero, why he exists within the world of Thomas. And Hero was actually one of the first trains on the island of Sodor, and he broke down. And he heard the fat controller talking about in, in, you know, being useful and contributing is a big thing in the world of Thomas. He heard the fat controller saying that, uh, that if you're not useful, that you'll be scrapped. Mm. So he hid away in a corner. One day, James and Henry find him and they hear his story and they fix him up and they bring him back into the story Hiro goes back to Japan so then you've opened up this thing where Thomas and Hiro can Thomas could come and visit Hiro in Japan um, and there's a Thomas railway in that runs it's running at the moment you know every summer down yeah. in Shizuoka and so Thomas can come to very naturally come and visit Hiro in in Japan the brand is Thomas the world is Sodor Thomas is the is is the hero but by having a local character in there, it gives you this ability to have local connections and make it more relevant to, to local kids, to Japanese kids. And now there are characters from all over the world in Thomas. You know, they've used that technique in, in other markets. What keeps you optimistic? One of the things with Japan is that the strengths in Japan are all old. They're all things that you know, have been created over hundreds and hundreds of years. Nothing is a commodity. Nothing is something that can be taken away from them. And everything that Japan can do now to build on that, to, it's not about Japan as number one in terms of GDP anymore. It's about Japan being number one at what it is and what it's, it's really good at. Sure. A book that what I'd recommend it to anyone is uh, The Business Reinvention of Japan. Which Business Reinvention of Japan. Of Japan yeah. By? Ulrike Shade. S-C-H-A-E-D-E. I think, yeah, University of San Diego, I think, right? 
Well, Ricky's book, people talk about the, the lost decades, and actually it's not been lost at all. And the Japan in the background has been preparing in a very slow and careful way to really gear itself up to take advantage of what's coming next. And there's a lot of optimism in that book. What I took out of it was Japan's future has to come out of what Japan does really well. But if you look at the history of Japan, they've constantly reinvented themselves. Yep, yep. The Meiji Restoration, yeah. defeat after World War II, mm-hmm. natural disasters, yeah. earthquakes, mm-hmm. or economic crisis, mm-hmm. oil shock, Lehman shock. They've always come out of it very well, and they'll do it again. But her book is, is very positive. I mean, what, what she talks about is that what Japan has a strategy, and the strategy is it going deep on niches. So you became more optimistic after reading her book? Well, I became optimistic about the idea of building a strategy based on your, your heritage, your culture, rather than on commodity, on mass production. If your USP is built on something that you have created over hundreds of years, yes. it's, uh, you know, no one's going to steal that. Yeah, if your USP is culture, you own it. Yeah. Frank, you are definitely one of those experts on Japan. You know, one of many people. And I've, especially since podcasts and Clubhouse, I listen to people all the time. I listen to, I've listened to all of yours and to Greg's stories and to what Tim and Maya do and what Jason does and business in Japan. And the quality of people, I'm just blown away. You know, there are people you, I've never met. I've been here for 30 years, working here for 30 years, and I haven't met a lot of these people. Me too. And it's thanks to social years. media. You know, I never met you either. Yeah. <laughs> and, but you, you know, you, I'm so impressed with the quality of them. So there's great pool of people. You, you probably saw the announcement from the Japanese government a little while ago that they're going to double the number of senior executives because they want to get more foreign direct investment into Japan. But the idea is, oh, we've well, got to bring in more foreigners to run more companies here. That might be good in some cases. What about having a look at this amazing pool that I didn't even realize was there until recently? So I'm thinking of ways of pulling that together, pulling stories. I think stories are powerful. As you're listening to my story today, go out and and start talking to these country managers, specifically to country managers. But things that are going to be useful to help companies make better hiring decisions when it comes to country managers, make better decisions on how they need to be supported. That could be the next big thing for next big thing. Yeah. You are definitely one of those experts on Japan. Frank, I want to thank you for your time today. I really thank enjoyed you. hearing about some of your insights and your experiences. Thank you. Hearing about some- Thanks for joining Frank, me. Thanks very much. And that was Frank Foley, owner of The Next Big Thing, which sounds like it might be You Gotta Hear This. Frank can be contacted at LinkedIn. If you enjoyed this discussion, please head over to nowandzen.jp for more episodes of fascinating folks with compelling Japanese journeys and experiences. Please feel free to share this episode wherever you feel appropriate. And if you're listening on iTunes, please leave a comment or a five or four star rating. Thanks, everyone.